Hello and welcome to God in Film, the podcast where a Christian and an atheist dive into the best that cinema has to offer and see if we can find any parallels with the gospel or any other Bible stories. I'm media coordinator and man without fear, Giles Goff. And I'm source maker and sightless swashbuckler, Phil Coleman. And today we're going to be looking at Daredevil. In particular, the modern adaptation originally premiered on Netflix in 2015 that has since moved to Disney+. So we'd like to apologise to the fans of the Ben Affleck Daredevil. Yes. Both of them. Because (laughs) whilst that film will always have a soft spot in my heart, it's not really what we're going to be talking about today. Phil, where does Daredevil rank in terms of your superhero favourites? Oh, he's like very very close to the top he might even be the top because mm-hmm. i remember watching the 2015 series when it first came out and i simply wanted to become daredevil albeit a sighted version mm-hmm. and i just thought he was the the single coolest superhero ever to grace my small northern eyes i think he's the best i really do i absolutely love daredevil that is absolutely fair he uh, he's he's a bit special. I think uh, I cosplayed as him once for, uh, for Halloween. That's pretty uh, cool. <laughs> and um, it's just uh, just a fantastic series. Now I have the pride, the privilege, nay, the pleasure of introducing you to a man beyond compare, <laughs> a geek who can trace his lineage back beyond Charlemagne. <laughs> I first met him atop a mountain near Jerusalem, praying to God. <laughs> Asking for forgiveness for the Saracen blood spilt by his sword. Next, he amazed me still further in Italy when he saved a fatherless beauty from the would-be ravishing of her dreadful Turkish uncle. (laughs) In Greece, he spent a year in silence just to better understand the sound of a whisper. (laughs) And so, without further gilding the lily and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, <laughs> the one, the only, Matt Heslop. <laughs> woo, woo. That's, that happens a lot with him, right? A lot, yeah, a lot, yeah. yeah. You can't hear anything for all the screaming. Hi, everyone. It's Matt, and I'm here today with some facts about Daredevil. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Let's get straight into it. What can you tell us about the creation of the character of Daredevil? Well, originally, Daredevil first debuted in 1964, created by Stan Lee, alongside Bill Everett, who was the artist at the time, and the infamous Jack Kirby. Jack was the penciler. Right. So he'd do the original lines, but the main artist was Everett, who was the inker for that very first issue. It's pretty much been explained that the character was the child of Stan and Bill. Right, okay. But a lot of people have said that, including historians, yes, comic books have historians. Quite right, too. That Kirby designed the original basic image. There was a lot of input from all three of them. Right. Each one put it together. Mm. Kirby's probably more well-known than Everett, but it's because Kirby was also involved in a lot more other comics as well. He's a name that keeps coming yeah, back. 100%. So Kirby has got his fingerprints on the Fantastic Four, the X-Men, the Eternals. Daredevil comes around 1964, so that makes him comparatively quite late in terms of the the Silver Age. By that point, we've got Spider-Man, the FF, Iron Man, the Avengers, and the X-Men, haven't we? 
That is correct, yes. Yeah. He was one of the later ones to arrive. Mm-hmm. This is the strange thing. Now, a lot of characters like the Spider-Man, he had first appeared in Amazing Fantasy. Yeah. But the surprising thing for this is Daredevil didn't appear in another one first. His first appearance is Daredevil number one. By that point, the uh, higher-ups at Marvel have enough confidence in uh, Stan and Jack to just say, just do whatever you want. (laughs) I think as well at the time, for a good long period, Daredevil was known as the sightless swashbuckler. And the character we think of today is a very, very different Daredevil to what first appeared. There's a darkness to Daredevil, man. And there has been in the comics for a long time, Mm -hmm. a lot of runs, and you can see it in the shows as well. And that all came from one person. Go on. Frank Miller. Yes. So just give people a quick idea who Frank Miller is when he's not writing Daredevil. Frank Miller has written a lot of pulp and dark comics. Mm -hmm. He wrote... Sin City's the first one that comes to mind. Sin City, The Dark Knight Returns, a lot of big known comics if you're reading a dark comic book and it's got dark overtones you're probably reading something that has been influenced heavily by miller how does that dark grittiness manifest with matt murdoch well to explain this i have to give a little bit of context because the blame cannot all fully fall on frank miller in the late 70s there was a man called roger mckenzie now he'd been writing a lot of horror comics and he was brought onto the daredevil line and he began to change things, Mm -hmm. making it a lot darker. This basically heralded the start of the Daredevil comics going much darker. Mm -hmm. There are some people who have accused Daredevil over the years of being a bit of a a Batman ripoff. What do you think of that? This is definitely the point where it started with Miller. Because Miller's writing Dark Knight Returns in the 80s, so for those of us that don't know, Dark Knight Returns is a a seminal sort of uh, run on Batman. It's an alternate future where Batman had given up being Batman and then sort of comes out of retirement to sort of fight in a world where there's recognisably a Ronald Reagan character and Superman has to is a is a tool of the state and is sent to stop him and a lot of Batman v Superman Dawn of Justice is ripped straight out of uh, of Dark Knight Returns, isn't it? That that is very true, and it's that connection which brings it all together. Because you've got to remember, before Miller came to it, he was a somewhat jokey, optimistic character. But it all changed. Right, okay. It was Frank Miller who brought in Stick, Mm -hmm. the blind sensei who trained him. It was under Miller that Electra came into the fold. Okay. The Hand, a group of assassins. It was Miller who brought all this in. They brought in the martial arts aspects. Was it Miller that created Electra? Uh, Yes, it was Frank Miller who created Electra. She was brought in as a love interest, but she had something that a lot hadn't. Now, Black Widow had been a big part of the Daredevil Daredevil storyline much earlier than this. And Electra was kind of brought in to replace it and to fit with the new themes. Gone was the fantastic rogues gallery of the Owl and the Fixer, but instead came Bullseye and most notably the Kingpin. Yeah. So you touched on something interesting there. You mentioned Black Widow and obviously Elektra. Am I right in thinking that Daredevil 
at least by Marvel comic book universe standards, is a bit of a ladies' man. Oh, most definitely. <laughs> he is he's very much a ladies' man. Mm-hmm. Recent years, it's mainly focused on a will-they-won't-they they with Elektra. Right. But definitely early on, yeah. There's been references to a few of them in the MCU as well. Karen Page, Karen Page. is a notable one. Yeah. So, hang on, Karen Page, in the Kevin Smith run, I think she gets AIDS and then she's killed off by Bullseye. Is that right? That is true. Which began a trend of for Bullseye, of killing people, namely the love interests of Daredevil quite a bit. He's also, Bullseye's also killed uh, Elektra back in the 80s, hasn't he? Daredevil 181. He did indeed. Anybody else thinks that these writers need to maybe go on a course? A little bit about how to treat your female characters? Oh, definitely. Most definitely. <laughs> I would honestly recommend reading the five-part miniseries Daredevil, The Man Without Fear. It was written by Frank Miller. It left Daredevil a good few years before that. He came back. Definitely worth a read. Right, okay. I mean, Man Without Fear is such a snappier title than the... The sightless swashbuckler. Yeah. You you can tell it it was a Stanley. Yeah, you can tell Stanley likes his alliteration at the cost of everything else. Listen, Matt, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. No problem. It was a pleasure as always. I'll speak to you all soon. Hi there. I'm Natalie Minica, writer, RS teacher and first reserve on the Godin Film co-host bench. I just wanted to tell you that Godin Film now has a Patreon page. Just go to www.patreon.com slash Podcast to support the show. There you can find the episode notes for every episode the God in Music episode featuring Sefa Ahiaku Agre, and now we have the special God in Gaming episode featuring yours truly and Cat Bullock from Finger Guns. Here's a clip. So one way in which some players choose to play the game, and I've done this myself a few times, is you create your sims, set them up in a little house, turn up the free will, and then just sit back and see what they do. And you'll see romances bloom and fade, career choices you didn't anticipate, and unexpected pregnancies and marriages and deaths and all this stuff. Um, And sometimes if you do this, your human, your little sim creations, they will massively frustrate you because they will do what you didn't want them to do and it's kind of like how i imagine god would like <laughs> look at us and it's like seriously uh. dudes I, I i gave you these skills and these abilities and then you go off and do something completely different and and it's and it's quite nice to kind of get a god's eye view on stuff if you'd like to support the podcast your money will go towards the running costs of the show and they will be eternally grateful and if you can't support them financially that's okay too So you can help out just by telling someone about the show or liking and sharing the show on social media. I have known Giles for over 20 years now and he never gets bored of people telling him how great he is. And, you know, he's all right. Now, back to the show. So, Phil, those were Matt's facts. What did you think? I'll tell you something. I didn't realise how often the Daredevil get compared to Batman. Mm. It does make sense. Obviously, Frank Miller... He wrote the Dark Knight Returns, as you as you as you said. But yeah, no, I, I see the similarities. I suppose. Yeah, like he's there's that 
brilliant meme going around saying, if you told me that one superhero would fight using a form of echolocation and the other one would do crazy feats of daring do and one would be called Batman and the other would be called Daredevil, then it would be the other way around. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense, actually. Yeah, it's, I, you know, I really enjoyed that. I always forget in comic books as well that there is a penciler and a separate job is for doing the colour. Yeah. That that sort of workflow, I just, yeah, just didn't. If you ever really. get the chance to watch Chasing Amy again, really gets into that whole thing between being the penciler and that's, the inker. And you're like, that's so you're exactly a tracer. what I'm thinking of. That's exactly what I'm thinking of. Yeah, it's Chasing Amy that I've um, mm-hmm. that I first realised that in. Everybody talks about the Frank Miller run on Daredevil and how influential that was, and I'm not going to deny that. But for me, it was when Kevin Smith had a run on Daredevil that really stuck out to me. It was uh, it was called the Visionaries one. Somebody lent it to me years ago, Ooh, and it had cool. such a a massive impact on me because Christians are really quite underrepresented in terms of comic books. They're just mm. not in, not seen that much in the uh, Marvel universe. There's, I guess, Captain America and Nightcrawler and Daredevil, but this felt like a text that really actually got to grips with the naughty aspects of what it was to be a Christian, in particular a Catholic and be a superhero, and try to look at that inherent contradiction. I mean, it is no surprise yeah. that Kevin Smith, who obviously talked about, we talked about his uh, his Catholicism in Dogma in our very first series, mm-hmm. so it's no surprise that it had such an impact on me, you know? Well, yeah, and also I'm pretty certain that Kevin Smith, like, in your head, is your dad. More like so. a cool uncle. That's the uh, yeah, that's cool, kind of thing. A cool yeah. uncle works. I'd like to. The I'd big like brother to. that we wish we always had. Now it's time for <gasps> finding the faith in the film. So, one of the things that is unique about the character of Matt Murdock in comics is that he's perhaps the only character that can be regularly found in the confessional booth. Okay. Mm. Now you're a you're ex Catholic, right? Yeah, yeah, ex. We'll say that actually, yeah, because I did believe at one point and then. Decided I didn't. No longer wanted to. I mean, go down if that it path. turns out you've actually been a Catholic this whole time, I'm gonna have to go do a whole lot of re-editing. So <laughs> I thought you were gonna say I'm after gonna come round there or something like that. I'd be like, <laughs> I mean, that's fair. That's a lot of work that's gone into it. No, I, I, I was raised um, Catholic, but I, um, yeah. So you've probably got some ideas about what uh, confession is, yeah? I've actually, yeah, I've been to confession once or twice yeah. in in moments when I was still wondering whether I was, you know, was with faith or not. So, so for those of you who aren't sure, who haven't spent enough time in a, in a Catholic church, we're going to dive into what confession is and, and just really sort of get to, get to grips with that. So there's plenty of biblical basis for going to confession. It stretches back even before Jesus to John the Baptist. There's one bit in Matthew 3, verses 5 to 6. People went out to him, that's John the Baptist, from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan confessing their sins they were baptized by him in the Jordan River and then later on after Jesus we've got some really nice straight up instructions from the epistles from different ones we've got James who do you remember he's like Jesus's little brother yeah yeah I think we've discussed him before haven't we yeah he's the one who goes from being like eh, I'm not that fussed to being like absolute ride or die you yeah know? just there like you know that Jesus fella he's my boy yeah. <laughs> so James says, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. 
And then uh, the last one I'm going to pick is, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And that's from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. There's some discussion about whether that is the Apostle John or whether that's a different John. It's a pretty common name, so we don't yeah, know. I was going to say, like, you know, John, Jack. It's about as common as each other, isn't it? So, mm-hmm. you know. So, as I say, you're probably quite familiar with what the confession setup is like. Sure, yeah. Now, did you know, officially, it's known as the Sacrament of Penitence? Do you know, I actually think I did know that. Okay, you do better than me, because I had... That rings a bell. I had no idea about that until a few minutes ago. (laughs) Everybody just calls it confession. I mean, you're going in, you're confessing. That's what it says on the tin. It's like So in in the Catholic Church, which is is what we both used to be part of, uh, you'd have a confessional booth where you sit in one side and the priest sits in the other. There's usually a type of grating, so you can't really see between the two sides, giving a sense of privacy. That's how it how it tends to be done. That's not essential. I remember my priest saying we could do your first your first confession in the in the confession booth, or you could just have it sat in the living room with me if you prefer. You know, it's that kind of sort that's, of thing. That's you know? quite nice. You know, you don't have to yeah. have that sort of dark, scary wooden chamber where it's just like. Excuse me, can I speak into the confession hole now? You well, know? <laughs> in, in the in the one in Bomaris Church, it had uh, windows to the outside, so it was always quite well lit, you know, it wasn't quite sort of that dark and scary. Nice. It was like Father McDermott was my priest there, and Bomaris Church was the one I went to. MC Dermott. Uh, the Catholic in the Church mix. in there. <laughs> and <laughs> it was so, it was very sweet, it was very loving, it was a very kind environment to be in. That sounds, that sounds like a nice, you know, sort of like welcoming environment for something as where are you going to lay your soul bare you kind of want it yeah. to be a gentle place, I mean though. like laying your soul bare at like seven is I had a fight with my brother and I had a fight with my sister you know and I didn't do my homework so <laughs> my experiences of <laughs> confession in a catholic context yeah, were really quite innocent you I know what I mean I suppose it's not just sort of like yeah so um, um, I, I killed several men I uh, cheated on my wife and uh, I don't like pineapple on pizza you know flipping neck Phil you've had a busy afternoon haven't you mate what, what can I say I'd, I've you know, no rest for the wicked <laughs> I've not cheated on my wife like, I've just not okay. done that alright 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 nobody I have killed several nobody men nobody said you had Phil until you said it alright alright just to be clear Thinking a lot about Natalie Portman isn't technically cheating, so oh, you know, thank that. God for that. <laughs> oh, that's a relief. <laughs> anyway, the idea is you uh, confess your sins out loud, and the priest, as a representative of God, forgives you and gives you penances to do. Now, uh, the penances can be a num- saying a number of prayers over and over, so like three Hail Marys and two Our Fathers, or the penance could be an act. It could be Mm. doing something good. And the struggle that Matt Murdock has throughout a lot of the show is that he wants to confess his sins. But he also needs... He he can't really stop being Daredevil. Yeah. It's sort of an extension of who he is, really, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So as a result of this practice in the Catholic Church, there's been perhaps a little too much focus on being guilty or feeling guilty. So, have you ever heard of the phrase Catholic guilt? Yes, very much so, yeah. Yeah. So, maybe you know something different, but as I understand it, this quite this colloquial phrase that we've heard quite a lot of sort of stems from this idea that it's all about confessing your guilt and confessing your sins. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, well, I, I sort of know it like that, but I think I know it as, rather than being able to confess it, it's also like an ongoing sort of feeling. 
yeah. just throughout your life through being just generally just generally living as a as a sinful human because yeah. humans are inherently sinful apparently yeah it, it's that's with me Christianity. that's me giving my layman's understanding no, you, of it you're so. not you're not wrong it's the it's the two sides of of the sort of christian thing it's like we are inherently sinful and god forgives us and washes us clean and really it's about like how much time do you spend balancing those two things do you know what i mean yeah yeah i can see that like i've got a meeting at five how how much repentance can i do you know <laughs> got stuff on <laughs> so anyway we get catholic guilt and we get the the confession process not only has this process been abused over the years but sometimes it can become a form of leverage or it can be used to constantly make people feel bad about themselves yeah interestingly have you ever heard about the term seal of confessional i don't think i have actually it sort of sounds familiar, but I wouldn't know where it is. Essentially, what it means is that a priest will not reveal what has been told to him in a confession under any circumstances. Oh, so it's kind of like doctor-patient confidentiality in a way. Well, yeah, basically. In some cases, if a priest has revealed what has been said to him, they've been defrocked, you know, they've been stripped of their priesthood. This was something that Pope John Paul II and Benedict XVI were really strong on, you know? Right. So this is a very serious process. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, I'd be pretty naffed off if someone was just like, hey, do you know what Phil did the other day? You know, mm. like, it'd be a bit much, wouldn't it? It also, uh, how can I put it, has, over the centuries, encouraged a little bit of being creative with the truth. So when a priest who says, I do not know, that's to be understood as, I do not know with knowledge outside the seal of confessional. I, I see what you mean. That makes sense. Yeah. St. Thomas Aquinas, Nat's favourite, Tommy A, goes even for. <laughs> goes even further and says that the priest knows the confession not as a man but as god knows it so do you remember we talked about the idea that god could just wipe away the memory of a sin oh yeah yeah that's like some kind of like some kind of selective memory wiping yeah basically you know so the idea is that that's how a priest is meant to think of it you know Mm. now in Church of England canon law, dated back to 1603, so while Shakespeare is still alive and still still hasn't released all of his bangers yet, you know? <laughs> it's just not quite got his greatest hits out yet. Yeah. So going back to 1603, there, there's a the priest who hears a penitent's confession has an absolute duty to not disclose it to anyone ever. And the problem has come in some cases where people have um, admitted admitted sexual abuse or stuff like that, you know? Yeah. However, guidelines state that the priest should refuse to give the abuser absolution. It, that means confirmation that God forgives the sin yeah. until they've reported themselves to the police. And this is something we talked about in the past, like way, 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 way back. It's not enough to just say, I'm sorry to God. You have to say, I am sorry to God and I'm sorry to man. Yeah. Getting right with God doesn't mean you just get get off the hook and you don't have to face any consequences. Yeah, there's like you know, you've you've got to make peace with both sides of the argument there, I suppose. Or both so, parties, I guess makes is a better term. Yeah. So as I'm sure you can appreciate, the entire concept of confession has become something of a, a loaded one throughout the centuries. Mm. For me, when I really became a Christian at fourteen, there was a change of practice, if you like, because in Catholic tradition, we're told that our priest is like our intermediary to God. Yeah. But in the Pentecostal tradition I came into, and arguably the Anglican community the world over, it's enough to confess your sins directly to God. 
Okay. So, in many ways, I came to see the process of confession as something that was unnecessary, problematic, and kind of interposing itself into my relationship with God. It's kind of like trying to squeeze in there when I don't need it, you know? Yeah, it's just like, you should confess, and it's like, I don't need to. Or I don't need to to you, you know? Yeah, yeah. But something made me change my mind recently. So, in church... Uh, we did a, a series um, just a few weeks back called uh, Not the Boss of Me. And it talked about all the kind of negative emotions that can kind of begin to boss you around and really take over your life, you know? Yeah. And my friend Mark Smith did a talk. He did one on guilt. And what he said really began to change the way I saw confession as a whole. Let's have a listen to a clip of what he had to say. When I was very young, I did something very wrong. I carried that with me for many, many years, and I'd forgotten about it, and it came back to memory, and I felt guilty, because I was guilty. I felt ashamed. So I decided to confess, and I contacted a friend, a Christian friend, and I shared all about it to him, and I brought it into the light. He listened to me. He didn't judge, and then he prayed for me, and the weight shifted and lifted, As an objective fact, the guilt remained. I've done what I've done. That hasn't changed. But the emotion, the feeling of guilt has lifted. What a joy. What a blessing. And that's when it hit me, like, in its purest form, when done right, the process of confession is basically therapy. Yeah, that's kind of where the whole doctor-patient confidentiality thing comes in. It's like it's, it's a similar transaction, I guess. Mm. like between two people is that you've got you know you've, you've got someone to get off your chest yeah and you know who better to talk talk about it with than if not god himself or themselves then um, a representative of his ministry yeah it makes sense so i i had a, a similar situation with to mark uh, a few years back where i'd done something uh, something that was less than great uh and I'd carried the shame of it with me for years, and that, that word shame was was a particular one that stuck with me. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was able to confess it to a friend who I felt safe with, who who was very mature and just able to make you feel at home. It wasn't until I was able to confess it to him that I felt any sense of closure on it, you know? Yeah. Because if nothing else, just having another person's perspective on something is really helpful. Yeah, no, I've I've had to lean on many friends it's always usually a friend as well rather than like because sometimes it can be too painful to speak to like family i think yeah and i think that helps you to sort of impart that shame a little bit and just kind of work through it without any kind of feeling of judgment so i mean like i think we can all agree that therapy is fantastic love a bit of therapy i've had had plenty of it in my time and it's always been very helpful And, and when done right it can be a real help to one's Christian faith. Yeah, I can so see how that would work. The the confession scene that was sticking in my mind is, I think, from quite uh, middle of sort of series one, I think, I'll double check, where he's talking with his, his father, Lantum, and they've already done the, you know, this seal of confession still applies over, even over lattes. Yeah. And there's that whole <laughs> section about what the nature of, of evil is. Do, do you remember that bit? Yeah, yeah, I think, and I watched that. It's one of, my, it's one of those scenes where, like, you you really start to get into the idea of of what Daredevil's really about, you know. Like it's yeah. not just about a guy who's blind and decides to become a you know a, a vigilante, mm-hmm. but it's about how 
having leading that double life and doing things that are a means to an end yeah. can sort of stain your soul a little bit, or at least it can feel as though it's staining your soul. That's a really beautiful way of putting it, staining your soul. So you've got that entire section about the nature of evil, which is fascinating. But if you remember, Matt ends up asking the priest, what if you could stop it? Yeah. Which is really the central thesis of the entire show, basically. How can you be a Christian, a religion which is explicitly non-violent, and at the same time stop bad people when that means resorting to violence? That's kind of his whole thing, really. He's just sort of like, well, I, the only way I can really stop the hand, Father, is uh, if I beat them into a, set, a bloody senseless pulp. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, I feel like there's an element of necessity in what Daredevil does. Absolutely. Um, that's why it's so conflicting for him, because he's like, but I, I need to do this. Yeah. But also, God's going to be pretty mad at me. <laughs> so, <laughs> So what's interesting about Matt is that he has this faith which is clear and genuine and and obviously has an impact on him. However, if we look at the way he operates, we'll see an element of what is often called utilitarianism. Have you ever heard of that? I have, yeah. Okay. So in essence, utilitarianism first brought together by a philosopher called Jeremy Bentham. Okay. So... Bentham's born in 1748, so we're talking about the time of the Enlightenment, roughly, okay? okay? And he believed that it is the greatest happiness of the greatest number that is the measure of right and wrong, which is quite an, an interesting way. This means that the, the best action is the one that's most useful or beneficial. Bentham also believed that humans were motivated by seeking pleasure and avoiding pain. Therefore, whatever brought pleasure or prevented pain for the greatest number of people was morally the right thing to do. Okay. So, essentially, what it means is that an action is determined to be good or bad based on what the outcome is. So, it's the sort of, like, the ends justify the means. Yeah, basically. So, Mm. I've got a bit of an interesting question for you. Whoa. (laughs) If you could kill Putin and you knew you would definitely get away with it and i mean putin as he is now not putin as a baby or anything if you could kill putin or putin would you do it depending on my answers whether the kgb come knocking on my door um... <laughs> bold of you to think that the kgb actually listens to our podcast yeah this is true actually I think... also even more bold considering the kgb was disbanded back in the late 90s or the early uh, 90s know, the, the, the the modern equivalent the fsb know. the fs is that that is that what they are all right yeah um i consider putin to be a net negative to society in all mm-hmm. forms so probably yeah 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 i think that's probably where i come to have with that one as well and mm. the reason this came to my mind is i was having lunch with an old friend recently he's a it's a guy i know from church he's possibly one of the most gentle loving people that i know and he said to me uh if i saw putin and i had a gun i'd shoot him you know? and it, putin. <laughs> yeah, it did make me wonder whether there's any way that loving god and acting with violence can be reconciled in any way shape or form and honestly what this really came down to was a debate between fundamentalism and pragmatism, okay? Yeah. Now, there's lots of verses in the Bible which can be interpreted into, and can push you, I guess, into a more fundamentalist mindset. So, for example, uh, James 4, verse 4, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity to God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. And this is something we hear through 
filtered through church like being in the world but not of the world so having christian values and not worldly values right interesting it is interesting it is a little bit of a cognitive blocker sometimes because yeah that feels flawed yeah because one of the things that can happen is it can essentially be saying do what i tell you and don't think about it for yourself right that's starting to remind me a little tiny bit of our conversation we had on cults (laughs) yeah Uh, but as a culture though we do have a tendency to lionize the people who absolutely refuse to compromise compromise their morals or beliefs under any circumstance so a famous example is uh, eric liddell who refused to run in the heats for the 100 meters in the olympics because it was being held on a sunday other examples i can think of are missionaries who'd refuse to deny christ, to deny christ even on pain of death we have stories like that going all the way up to reports of martyrdom for the Columbine massacre. So that that sort of thing of holding fast to that thing that you believe in is a thing that we have tended to put on a pedestal, not just in Christian culture, but I think in in wider culture as a whole, you know? Yeah, I think I think as an atheist, I think erring towards the side of pragmatism, I feel is more in keeping with how the world just is naturally if that makes sense you can have your fundamental things but i feel as though you will find full stops a lot more in life some situations become impossible when they didn't need to be impossible based on something that you've created a barrier you've created for yourself yeah so it's interesting you say that because obviously the problem with any kind of fundamentalist belief is when it starts to hurt or seriously affect other people so Perhaps the best example of a fundamental belief we can see is the abortion debate, which is particularly hot in the United States. It's such an emotive issue that we've regularly seen voters be led by the nose simply because of their pro-life or pro-choice stance. So, for example, obviously, many voters were able to justify voting for Trump because they could not bring themselves to vote for Hillary purely because of her pro-choice position. Consequently, they empowered a man who put children in cages, discriminate against people based on their country of origin, and even allowed thousands of their people to die due to a poor response to a COVID outbreak. So, in this sense, we can see how a fundamentalist position can, in many cases, lead a person to being party to much more heinous acts just to avoid crossing one specific moral red line. Which... I only ever find that extremely and wholly frustrating in mm-hmm. most in most avenues. Yeah. Like especially when it comes to say politics because yeah. good grief it's just simply astonishing to me and very frustrating. Yeah. Now, you remember in our Hacksaw Ridge episode we talked about somebody having fundamental morals that they won't bend or any under any circumstance. We also talked about how Desmond Doss was able to compromise his morals at the end. If you remember, he yeah. said he'd never pick up a gun. Not that he wouldn't fire one, but that he would never even touch one. Yeah. And yet, towards the end of that film, we see him pick up a gun, wrap a blanket around it, and he uses it to pull Vince Vaughn's character backwards whilst Vince Vaughn is shooting. Well, so, it, yeah. <laughs> even, even fundamentalist types can make a compromise somewhere. Now, that's not to say that compromise is inherently better than sticking to your principles at all times. In fact, if we think about the appeasement strategy that was applied to Hitler just before the Second World War, 
we can see that compromising doesn't always work and shouldn't always be pursued. You with me? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was literally Hitler. <laughs> yeah. You know. So this is the thing. It's not always best to stick to your morals, but then again, it's not always best to bend them. You know, and this is what makes it a moral quandary, which is what makes Matt Murdock such a compelling character because we see him wrestling with it all the time, you know? Yeah, it's one of the things I liked the most about the show is that he's one of the most human feeling superheroes, I think, in the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yeah. Like, you know, next to say, like, Steve Rogers, for example. Yeah. And even he's like, you know like Captain Perfect, isn't he? So, you know what I mean? Like he's, he's not... In some cases, Daredevil knows that what he is doing is right and justifiable. However, violently hurting people in order to stop them takes a toll on him physically, mentally, and I think spiritually. And mm. for me, that's what makes him such a compelling character, you know? That scene in the, um, in the hallway episode two of the first season yeah where it's the one continuous shot and he just mm. and it's such a brilliantly choreographed scene and it's so telling of his character because he's just going and going and going and the more yeah. he goes on the more absolutely knackered he is like he's flopping around really trying to just continue on and it's it's one of the coolest fight scenes i think i've ever seen yeah, like like just just because it's not just a fight scene, but it's also character development and showing like, his who he is. Yeah, with my filmmaking hat on, I absolutely loved that. And also, twenty fifteen, that sort of time period, I was still doing a lot of my running and my Spartan races and all the rest mm. of it, and just seeing the physical exhaustion, the moment where they'd be punching and hitting, but they'll still have to stop to have a just breathe for a moment. You know, yeah. it's, it's there's amazing. one point where he like punches somebody and then basically just falls over. From yeah. the, from, he's like the 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 force of him throwing that fist. As basically just like sent him spinning over at the yeah. same time, and I was I remember watching it and just being like you know mouth agape kind of thing, being like that is freaking cool, you know. Yeah. I loved it. So the last thing we're going to talk about is Crisis of Faith, okay? Mm-hmm. And this is a topic we're going to return to in a later episode, so I'm not going to get into it too deeply here. But after the events of the Defenders miniseries, so that was like uh, Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Luke yeah. Cage, and Iron Fist. Um, at the end of that, Matt Murdock has barely escaped death after having a building dropped on him and losing his <laughs> beloved Electra. Yeah, I mean, that'll do it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, when I've had buildings dropped on me, it has seriously messed up my day, you know? Yeah, no, I've, I've usually missed lunch. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. <coughs> <laughs> so, anyway, Matt starts Series 3 battered, bloodied, and broken. And... Uh, Charlie Cox had a, a brilliant thing to say about it. He said, Matt's relationship towards God and his faith has changed dramatically. He still believes in God, but he now believes in a punishing God. He's that angry. He feels let down. If you're someone who believes was given this gift to help and that's almost taken away, but you're still alive, it throws everything into question. So broadly speaking, I think there are two types of crisis of faith. Okay. Yeah. The first one is when you start to have simple doubts that come into your mind that are never addressed to your satisfaction. So you're you're there in church and you've got questions and the people around you are never able to really satisfyingly answer those things that are a problem for you. Yeah. 
And the second is when you are hurt so badly, so painfully, that it's not really about no longer believing in God, but no longer believing that God has your best interests at heart. Now this is this is that's worse, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. This is part of the inherent contradiction, right? So as somebody who had a fairly traumatic injury happen to them at quite an early age, I know that not everything has to go your way. You can be hurt and God is still on the throne. You know, God is still is still sovereign, God is still king. Yeah. And that God is not an insurance policy for me. It's not yeah. like, oh well, I'm signed up with God now, so everything's <laughs> sail- smooth sailing from here I've on put in. Put deposit down and pay me yeah. monthly installments. <laughs> there is a knowledge that it could all go to hell at any time, and yet I would still describe myself as being fully reliant on God. You know, for yeah. a lot of years when I didn't know where the next paycheck was coming from, that was even more so. You never quite. All I knew was that the rent always got paid, and there was always petrol in the tank, and god provided for me in those times but so you've got that weird dichotomy if you like is that you know that it could all fall apart at any minute yeah but you kind of hope that it doesn't do you know what i mean yeah that just feels like day-to-day life at the moment yeah (laughs) i I totally get that (laughs) yeah and it becomes not so much about questioning god but somewhat but more like lashing out at god yeah no i it's one of the reasons i think why i decided to be an atheist because it's it's too for me just too much pain to try and believe that there is a god when there's just so much pain in the world and so much pain that i've been through yeah and it just my it, my brain just doesn't compute it yeah. that's the best way that's the best way i can describe it that's and I, I think i think pain the, the painful aspects of of life and the amount of things that can be thrown at you yeah i can see how a crisis of faith can come about i mean it was so bad for me i just decided to stop so you know there we go thank you for sharing that with me i really i really appreciate that that's quite all right so i think it's fairly obvious that if you do find somebody in this situation the last thing you want to do is engage them in a theological debate about just how great god is they are they are not interested right now if they are if they are hurting and they want to lash out and hurt somebody it might as well be you and it might as well be god you know just because she's got this image just this this guy he's just like i don't know he's just he's just been run over been robbed his house is just set on fire and this guy comes hey do you know god's actually belting <laughs> you just yeah. be like he does he doesn't feel very belting right now i'm not gonna lie yeah yeah <laughs> So I think in this instance, the best thing we could possibly do for someone in this situation is to just listen to them, you know, Mm. just give them love and care and listen to them for what they need. And this isn't always easy in some cases because they might not know what they need or they might not know how to convey it. And that's why you've, you've just got to listen and be patient and crucially just be there for them. I think that's probably the best way you can show love for somebody is to be with them when they might not be a lot of fun to be around. Yeah. Yeah, I've I've been that person. I'm certain you've been that person plenty of times. You know, everybody has. It's it's part of it's just part of healing, I think, really. And that concludes our finding the faith in the film. So Hey, how cheery was that, guys? That was <laughs> lol fest as per usual. Absolute usual-ness. laugh a minute. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to us. Uh, please join us next week when we are getting into the Eternals. Oh, uh, yeah. Phil, have you had a good time? Do you know what? Absolutely relish the opportunity to talk about Daredevil at any given moment. So, uh, yes, I absolutely did enjoy myself. <laughs> Fantastic. All right, listeners, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Gordon Film is hosted and created by Giles Goff and Phil Coleman. Mixing and editing by Giles. Our logo was designed by Julie Walsh. And our theme tune was composed by Rick Lee. Waffle editing by Natalie Minica. Gordon Film is a Dash production. Please rate and review, unless it's a one star, in which case, let us know by sending your review typed up in Braille. I don't read Braille.